Good evening, everyone, and good late afternoon to those of you in the Pacific time zone. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and as always, it's wonderful to see all of you here tonight. Um, this is Restorative Justice on the Rise. We are so delighted tonight to be kicking off our fall 2015 season with a very special and distingu distinguished guest. That's Maya Shenoir, and in just a moment I will give her uh, a very well-deserved introduction before we go into a conversation with her and with you. So a very warm welcome to you all. If you aren't familiar with Restorative Justice on the Rise, this is our fifth season. We have been providing, uh, aiming to provide and providing a conversation platform that involves dialogues around the topic of justice, of course, and, and also related areas of systems transformation. We have conversations that other people may not uh, feel at liberty to go into, and we also like to create a field of conversation that is inclusive. So that means that during this hour together, as many of you might know, you can press one on your telephone keypad, especially towards the halfway mark of our call tonight with Maya, and ask questions, make comments, and also thank you so much for those of you who already submitted questions. They were excellent, and I'm looking forward to sharing those with Maya tonight. So thank you again. There's, as I said, a couple ways to involve yourself in restorative justice on the rise, and that's one, you can pre-submit your questions at the registration process. It's absolutely free of charge to be involved in this, although I know that some of you may have long-distance minutes when you call in that expire. Um, we're doing everything we can to keep this as open source and as free of charge to everybody as possible. Um, the second way, of course, again, is to provide um, comments and questions while we're in this conversation. Now, we do have a wonderful lineup for the rest of this month. Next week, we will be talking with Dr. David Ragland, who is the director of the Truth Telling Project, and um, really looking forward to hearing from him about the work that he's doing in uh, Ferguson and in other places in cultivating community conversations and truth telling. So please um, stay posted and also check out restorativejusticeontherise.org which provides a resource map for people to list their restorative justice and related organizations free, free of cost again, creative commons valued. So that means that uh, all the, the resources at restorativejusticeontherise.org have been underwritten by uh, private foundations as well as by the co-sponsorship of the Peace Alliance. The Peace Alliance, of course, has been doing over a decade's worth of work in the field of community peace building, uh, including restorative justice work. So if you are interested in finding out more about local action teams, go to peacealliance.org. And also, again, check out restorativejusticeontherise.org for a resource map, a bookstore, uh, also, we're going to be featuring uh, Maya's book, which we're going to be talking about here just very shortly, which is called Locked Down, Locked Out. It's an extraordinary read. That will be featured at Restorative Justice on the Rise as well. 
Um, and for many of you who are familiar, we also provide a podcast recording of all of the interviews that we have conducted, all of the conversations we've had over the years, um, which is relatively short, although it feels like a long time over the last five years. There's about 130 interviews that you can access, and we're trying to build ways to make things a little bit more snappy around providing shorter segments for people and also acting as a hub for networking um, for people within the field. So thank you so much for being here tonight with us. Again, this is Molly Rowan-Leach. I'm your host. And let's just uh, go into an appropriate and uh, very, again, well-deserved introduction of our honored guest tonight, and that's Maya Shinwar. She is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. That's truthout.org, an extraordinary news resource, go-to spot for a lot of different areas in social justice and beyond. And Maya is an extraordinary writer herself. She's the author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work, and How We Can Do Better. And that is the, the framing emphasis for our conversation tonight with Maya. Um, Michelle Alexander says, I turned the last page feeling nothing less than inspired by this book. And um, just a few more things about Maya. She's written about the prison industrial complex for, again, Truth Out, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, Ms. Magazine, and others. She's also the recipient of a Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Chi Award, an Independent Publisher Book Award, the Women's, Women's Prison Association Sarah Powell Huntington Leadership Award, and the Lannan Residency Fellowship. She serves as chair of the Media Consortium's board and is active with the Chicago-based abolitionist group Love and Protect and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Previous to her work at Truth Out, Maya was contributing editor at Punk Planet magazine and served as media coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And of course, in our archives is a wonderful conversation that we have with Kathy Kelly from VCMB. So I'd like to, of course, um, in a moment, warmly welcome Maya to converse with us. But I wanted to frame our conversation tonight with a very powerful excerpt from chapter 10 of Lockdown, Locked Out, and that chapter is called A Wake Up. And in it, Maya says, Incarceration may provide public reassurance that dangerous people have vanished and are, there no, are therefore no longer in existence. But it also permits a different kind of closed-eyed comfort for those safely ensconced in non-prisonerhood. As Angela Davis notes, it veils homelessness. It veils poverty. It veils illiteracy. It veils drug dependency. And it veils racism, the criminalization of black and brown people persisting over the centuries under the mask of justice. Maybe then, part of confronting the destructive force of isolated punishment, of the mechanisms that grant power to the prison nation, is regaining sight. This means looking with open eyes at the suffering and oppression of our underground youth. It means knowing that accountability isn't only an obligation, 
thrust upon the people when they've done harm. In order to end the time of sleeping, we've all got to hold ourselves accountable to our community of humans. So without further pause, I just want to welcome you, Maya, to the conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much, Molly. It's great to be here. <laughs> I'm pretty impassioned about your work, Maya, and um, in reading your book, uh, a lot came up for me in just so many ways with uh, a mother who was incarcerated for 15 years, and you just outlined so many of the underlying causes and um, give such an expansive report of sorts from a wide wisdom base about um, why prison doesn't work and how we can do better. And I wanted us to start out, if we could, with why it is that you wrote this book, because there may be some who are not familiar with what your own experiences have been. Would you share a bit, please? Absolutely. So for me, I've been covering prison issues for over a decade as a journalist. You know, that's my kind of vocation. But at the same time, for over a decade, my sister has been in and out of prison. She went to prison for the first time as a juvenile. And so she's, she's been kind of waging that struggle. And as her family, obviously, we've also waged kind of concurrent struggles. And one of, one of the things I'd been seeing, and of course when I started writing this book, it was kind of before prison reform had come into vogue in the way it's in vogue right now. But, but one thing that I'm actually still seeing is that so many discussions around this issue are really flat and impersonal. And they come down to numbers. You know, they're about statistics or they're about money. And all of those things are understandable. You know, we want people to know the vast number of people who are incarcerated, and we want people to know how much it costs because all of us are paying for it. But sometimes we hear those numbers again and again and again, and what's missing is the humanity. You know, and particularly, I think, what is usually missing is the humanity not only of people who are incarcerated, but all the other people who are impacted by prison, which is millions and millions more people beyond the 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States. And so I wanted to write a book that kind of shed light on some of that impact on families, on communities, on individuals on an internal level, and also just thinking about, you know, how does prison kind of shift the ways in which people can relate to each other in our society? You know, how does it get into the bones of our relationships? So that was, those were all things that I was hoping to explore. And I think that for me, you mentioned kind of like, the emotions that boil up when you talk about this subject. And I think for me, when I first started thinking about writing this book, I thought about writing it in a much more impersonal way. But the second I got into it, I realized how much of, of my family's personal story needed to go in. And that, I think, 
has really carried it through the fact that, first of all, my sister was, was very happy to have her story shared. And I think that personal element is what's going to help us connect with people who don't necessarily care about this issue yet, who aren't necessarily thinking about it on a human level. We just have to be telling those kinds of stories. So that was my goal. Mm. And you do it so beautifully in the first chapters in the book where you really frame those things that many of us may not be aware of. And as I was mentioning, I felt myself uh, that I was mirrored some very real feelings and deep ones that um, mm. I didn't even realize I still had around the things that families and loved ones face. Um, and mm. how that might not be known to those, those of us who have never experienced um, having either been incarcerated ourselves or a loved one or friend um, incarcerated. And I wonder if you might speak to how this element of isolation is such a central theme, it seems, at least to me, throughout the book and how if we understand more clearly how isolation is used by a punitive system, um, how can we unwind away from that? What are, what are ways that we can move away from this idea that we have to isolate and punish? Yeah, absolutely. That was one thing that, that I wanted to emphasize was this idea that it's not just about prison as an institution labeled prison. It's about this idea of isolative punishment, this assumption that for a whole host of harms from you know, possessing a certain drug to committing murder, that the appropriate punishment is to put someone in isolation, whether that's an extreme form of isolation or whether it means isolating them from their own family and loved ones. And I think that one thing that we have to do to start scratching away at that assumption is to think, okay, tangibly, what does isolation do? And particularly, what does isolation do when it's kind of imposed in a response to harm? And one of the things it does, first of all, is that it, it has a very immediate effect on people on the outside. So that's, that's something that I stress in the book, is like very often the people going to prison are primary income earners, and they go away and their family has to start from scratch. Very often people going to prison are parents, usually they are, and the vast majority of women in prison are mothers, and they go to prison and their kids are often taken away, sometimes put in foster care. So that isolating effect immediately starts having those ramifications on the outside. For the person on the inside, the types of kind of psychological impacts that start manifesting happen pretty quickly. And one thing that a lot of people told me, you know, to write this book, I, I interviewed a lot of people in prison, and one thing that, that people started talking about was 
how the defenses they built up, all of the mechanisms that they constructed for themselves to deal with isolation, to cope with that pain of isolation, were actually counterproductive for them on the outside. So, for example, learning how to just be okay with not relating to people, not talking to people. You know, in prison, they often tell you, keep your head down, don't interact. <laughs> and so how, how different is that from, like, the skills that you need to lead a, a vibrant and happy and fulfilled life on the outside, you know, the, the way in which you have to learn how to not miss your family. Of course, that, that can't work, but you need to develop skills for disconnecting from your family. So that process takes place where, you know, we know that actually the, the best ways to address harm actually have to do with connection, have to do with building connections with your loved ones in your community. You know, and obviously it's not this simple thing like, okay, well, we'll just do that. But prison actually does the opposite. And one of, to me, one of the most heartbreaking things when I interview people about this kind of thing is to interview people who are incarcerated for very long sentences, for decades, or for life. And they talk about these skills they've picked up for, for dealing with isolation, how they've taught themselves not to care when, you know, instead of 10 letters per year from their mother, they get seven letters per year, five letters per year. You know, people who are incarcerated for very long periods of time, these are the things that they need to learn. You know, and the, the stories that you have to tell yourself to make that okay, I think are so extraordinarily painful and punishing in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. I love how in the book you lay out so detailed um, the feeling that some of the folks that you interviewed, either incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, um, just the simple act of hearing their name called out for mail call, um, mm -hmm. that has such meaning to them. So there's so many I, seemingly simple things that you lay out so beautifully, even, you know, again, in those, just, just those opening chapters that frame the nuances that many of us are unaware of. Um, and I just would like to, to raise something about uh, a point that you make that I think is so powerful and I, I'm sure our participants would feel that way too and that is how does this all impact all of us? Mm -hmm. um, speak to that more specifically if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that happens on, on a number of levels. The first level is, you know, prison, it's an isolative punishment, but we live in a society where we're all interconnected and you can't cut off prison itself from the rest of society. So the more we incarcerate millions of people, the more those, those incarcerations are going to have rippling impacts. And that's not just, you know, someone was pulled out of my community, although that's, that's one part of it. It's also, you know, you're a teacher and a kid in your class 
has an incarcerated parent and suddenly they're not doing their homework. Like there are all of these little ways that incarceration will poke holes just in daily existence. So, so that's one aspect. Another thing that, that I really want to emphasize is that incarceration doesn't, doesn't just impact communities in like an even way across the board. It very, very specifically targets certain communities, marginalized communities, particularly poor communities of color. And so when you're poking these holes, when you're imposing these constant disruptions on a community by yanking people out of it, it's coming down so hard on certain communities. And what does that do to those communities? Well, all the research has shown that what it does is actually has nothing to do with safety at the level that it's happening. It's actually making things worse, including crime at this level, because the most important thing for developing strong and safe connections is to have people staying in neighborhoods, getting to know their neighbors, building bonds, knowing each other's children, all of those things. And if you constantly have people kind of moving in and out, those bonds are disrupted and that safety isn't able to be built. I think that another thing to keep in mind is, is some of the ways that people get stuck in the cycle of prison and how that impacts the rest of us. And like, I, I think I like to be careful of, of how I frame this because it's not that people go to prison and become criminals. It's that people go to prison and prison encourages harmful behaviors. Like, just like it rewards behaviors that are isolating in some ways, it re rewards behaviors that are not adaptive on the outside. It also often rewards violence, or at least rewards certain kinds of self-defense, which on the outside would not serve you well and actually would probably get you sent to prison. And, so, and keep in mind that People going to prison have usually experienced some trauma in their lives. Most people who've committed violent crimes, for example, had been victims of violent crimes beforehand. And so people are going to prison already carrying trauma, going to prison, and that trauma is deepened. Because first of all, we know there's a lot of physical violence and sexual violence behind bars, high levels. But even beyond that, the act of incarcerating someone, of caging a human being, is a violent act when you, when you get down to it. And so that trauma is being heaped on top of existing trauma. And if we follow that through, and we think about the fact that hurt people hurt people, then we have to come around to this question of, okay, what is prison actually doing for the rest of us? Is it actually addressing the issues that we see as safety concerns? Is it addressing dangerous behaviors? No, in many ways it's actually exacerbating them. And this, I think, gets to part of the, the recidivism rates that we see in this country where, you know, we have a re-arrest rate that's practically two-thirds people come out of prison and within three years, two-thirds of them are, are re-arrested. 
And so that's also because certain neighborhoods are targeted, certainly black and brown communities are, are feeling very high levels of police violence or police control and police surveillance and there are all these factors that go into it. But also prison itself is not doing anything to prevent that recidivism. And so I think that we need to look at these factors and I think sometimes the problems with policy prescriptions around this are they'll, they'll offer kind of solutions to scale things back or they'll offer certain limited reforms, but they won't look at this kind of central question of what is prison doing to people mm -hmm. and for people, including mm -hmm. all of us on the outside. It just strikes me, um, to speak to the obvious that I, of what I think we all know, and that's that everything that is, uh, so many of these things at least, are absolutely contradictory to the ability to have success in mm -hmm. doing what uh, corrections and law enforcement set out to do, or at least they say they set out to do, which is to mm -hmm. rehabilitate and to set forth uh, the capacity for highest potentialities upon um, that word reentry, which I agree with you with what you say in the book around, um, I'm not really sure how I feel about the term reentry either. Um, right. But, <laughs> but um, why then is there, do you believe, so much resistance if even those who um, have the power to change, and of course we ourselves have that, I believe that deeply, in our community to change, system, but why is there still this feeling in our cultural collective and national conversation of, at the same time that there's this tipping point in, um, as you said, uh, you know, the vogue nature of prison reform right. and um, decarceration conversation, but what, what, what's going on though really? Why is there so much resistance to actually enacting those things that we that you line out so beautifully later on in the book as solutions and examples that are very viable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's a really interesting time right now because people have responded definitely to the idea that there are too many people behind bars. The, the kind of specter of mass incarceration is very sobering for people, particularly because they see that price tag. You know, we hear again and again that prison is costing Americans $80 billion a year, you know, and we're keeping all these people incarcerated who've done things that so many of us have done. <laughs> and I think that what, what it's hard to speak to, I think, or harder, is to kind of get beyond the punishment mentality so you're actually challenging prison itself as opposed to challenging mass incarceration. Because challenging mass incarceration is a really nebulous thing to do. What makes incarceration mass? Does it stop being mass if you stop incarcerating people for marijuana offenses? Does it stop being mass if you incarcerate people per for petty theft, you know, what, what's the level that it drops? And actually, in order to cut our incarceration levels 
to a point that that would, I guess, equal that of 35 years ago before this all started going up, 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 we would have to decarcerate a significant number of people who've committed violent crimes. And so I think right now a lot of the reforms being proposed are things that would address people convicted of very small nonviolent offenses, and that's what's safe to do politically. And certainly that's what the president is doing. That's what's seeing a lot of, of energy in Congress and energy in state legislatures. A lot of it has to do with this idea of decarcerating a certain number of, of nonviolent offenders. And while that's a good thing, the thing that it risks and the thing that I'm actually pretty concerned about is that as it's doing that, this rhetoric is being hammered in again and again about how, well, you know, we need to have mercy on these nonviolent offenders who are incarcerated for very long sentences, which is true. And we have to recognize that these other people should be incarcerated, that there are people we should be locking up and throwing away the key. President Obama has done this again and again in, in talking about federal prison reform. He'll say, you know, we have to know who we're scared of and who just did something stupid. You know, and breaking people into these two categories. Instead of, you know, seeing harm for what it is, which is complicated and not that straightforward, and there aren't just some people who are violent and some people who, who are harmless, you know. And I think that that's a challenging conversation to have on a national level, but if we really mm -hmm. want to look this problem in the eye, we have to have it. Mm, absolutely, and it raises the question, of course, um, in the conversations that we have regularly on this series, we're fairly saturated with the fact that restorative justice is something that is a viable solution and it's showing, of course, as you so well state in the book again, um, that measurable aspect of recidivism. Um, the measurable mm -hmm. aspect of dropping recidivism rates is one of the qualities that restorative justice um, related programs and programs like the one here in Colorado called the Longmont Community Justice Partnership where uh, recidivism is at 8%. Um, but that being said, um, it's so fascinating to me to then hear your perspective because you have such a broad uh, tap on the national conversation. Would you say more about what your thoughts are on why restorative justice and related programs may not be as much of the overall conversation, but how they really are uh, in your own way um, and view um, your, your, your thoughts on how they're working themselves nonetheless in communities and on state levels. Yeah, definitely. So I think one reason that restorative justice and transformative justice and other kind of strategies like this for building safety and building community one of the reasons they haven't been getting like major play in the centers of these conversations is that a lot of this national conversation is about saving money. 
This is a conversation that has been spurred on by very conservative interests. If you look at why there's this rising concern, well, a lot of it is tied to state budget crunches and certain very influential conservatives getting behind the cause of what's being called prison reform, really, you know, decarceration. And so you see Grover Norquist and Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers jumping on this bandwagon and saying, okay, we need prison reform. And of course, first of all, it's, it's really great <laughs> that they see that we should be incarcerating fewer people, although I have some problems with their proposals to deal with it. But they're not talking about reinvesting money in community-based programs or in dealing with harm in creative ways. They're about saving money. And in fact, in a lot of these situations, the place that money is going, once it's coming out of prison, is local police departments and even efforts like stop and frisk in various cities. And so I think that, that we really have to be careful about some of these alliances and, and some of these reform efforts that are happening because I think the fact that restorative justice isn't seen as much in the national eyes is partially a result of, of that emphasis on decreasing resources. Now, at the same time, in my work, one of the things that I was trying really hard to do was talk about how it's not just about decarceration. If we're talking about moving to a world beyond prisons, we have to acknowledge the fact that harm happens and that we're going to have to find creative and different and in some ways existing but, but not sanctioned ways of dealing with harm. And we can't ignore that because otherwise we're just going to keep perpetuating the system. And so what I chose to do, because there's not some kind of national, central, like, you know, Obama restorative justice program, there is the, the most successful efforts that I've seen have been very local, very community-based. And communities have kind of come up with the models that work for them. And I guess I hesitate to even say model because it's about growing what your community needs. And that looks different everywhere. So like certain aspects are always replicable, but it's not about kind of like taking a model from one community and being like, oh, we can build that here. So if I have a moment, I, I can talk about a couple of the, the efforts that I looked at, if that would be I would helpful. love that, and I think we all yeah. would. Um, let me just stop you for a moment, though, Maya, if I might. Um, if you're joining sure. us late, of course, we're talking with Maya Shenoir, who is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. Of course, that's truthout.org. You can also find out more about Maya's work, all of her writings, as well as the extraordinary book that we are talking about tonight with Maya, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. You can find that at mayashenoir.com. And that's, her last name, is, of course, is spelled S-C-H-E-N-W-A-R. mayashenoir.com. So Maya, um, before we talk more about solutions, 
um, which is a great way to turn the conversation because that's what you do, of course, in your book. Um, let's invite the community into the conversation. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, make a comment, please press 1 on your telephone keypad and we'll try and get in some live questions. And I'm going to start out while you all are thinking about your questions with a pre-submitted question that was quite striking from Kimberly. Um, and Kimberly asks, what role does human rights play in your framework? And are there any concrete recommendations based upon existing prison systems in the international setting? Given the many differences between our minimal social welfare structure and the Northern European Southwest structure, which is grounded in affirmative guarantees under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, how can we hope to transfer their enlightened, well-resourced human rights space, correctional policies and programs to the United States? What do you think is a good way to start? Thank you, yeah, I think that that's a great question. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think part of it, I mean, my, my tiny short answer is we can't exactly do that. I, I have little hope for the idea of replicating what Northern Europe has done here just because the historical circumstances are so different the current framework is so different. And it's really true that, yeah, we would have to have a, a full cultural shift in which very, very different values were recognized in order to, to have that take place. And I think we need that culture shift, but we shouldn't be looking to enact that culture shift with the goal of ending up with European prisons, with Northern European prisons we should be thinking about how, how we can move forward with that culture shift with the goal of you know, seeing where it takes us and maybe it doesn't take us to prison at all. You know, sometimes, it's funny, when I first started researching my book, I had this idea that I was going to get a fellowship to go to Greenland because I thought that the Greenland prison system, which is just one prison, was such a great system if you had to have a prison. And I did a lot of research. It turned out that there are not many, many good ways to get a grant to Greenland. But one thing I discovered along the way was that Greenland had not had prisons before the 1970s, and they were dealing with harm in other ways. And of course, you know, as a result of certain colonial developments, that, that changed. And I, I was thinking about how I had so longed to have this ideal place of like, well, it should be like this that we can then copy. And I can't, I can't quite see things working like that. Instead, I think we really do have to start from that community level. And I think as to the first, the first aspect of the question, thinking about a human rights frame and just in part the disregard for human rights in this country and how, how that affects this question. I think one of the issues that this has really come to light around lately is solitary confinement. Because I'll, I'll talk about this issue with people and 
sometimes they'll say, well, you know, people have to be in solitary confinement because otherwise they'll go around killing anyone or, oh, they deserved it. But when it comes down to it and you say, okay, but look, this is, this is actually torture. Like the UN is saying that this is torture. And you talk through what's actually being done. A lot of times you, you get to this idea that there isn't a universal recognition in this country, of course, that everyone deserves human rights. You know, that's not, that's not taken as a given. And so I think that in order to really approach this question in a humane way, that needs to be addressed head on. You know, I, I think like when I write something about that issue, when I write about solitary confinement, and I get letters from readers saying, well, you know, this man that you spotlighted, did he rape someone? Did he murder someone? What did he do to get himself in there? That's the question. And I have to write back, he's a human being. Do you think that we can, in good conscience, treat any human being this way? And it's, it's a shift that I think is difficult to make, but it's one we have to push. Mm. Thank you, and, and again, thank you for that great question, Kimberly. Um, tell us more, if you would, please, about your view, uh, especially you know, in the chapter uh, called Telling Stories. You go into quite a few examples that you really got into um, perhaps even interviewing people within the programs that you talk about in this chapter and, of course, beyond in the book. So part of what we do here um, on Restorative Justice on the Rise is really go into examples of what is currently being seen as viable and activated solutions in communities. So love to hear from you about that, Maya. Yeah, definitely. So I think that part of what I was talking about earlier with individual communities is not just, okay, like creating a program in a community, but finding the places and the structures in a particular community that are already compassionate and safe spaces and pushing that further so that it can really happen in the service of restorative justice. So for example, one, one place I look is a hair salon in Chicago where the barbers use restorative justice practices to work through instances of violence and instances of potential violence with their clients. So this is a neighborhood that is considered high crime, certainly has a very high rate of incarceration. And a woman who was interested in restorative justice and worked at the local church there decided that she wanted to train the barbers in peace circles. And the idea is that the barbers are already acting as confidants, and barber shops and salons are already places that feel caring and safe. So they're these natural spots for this kind of interaction, as opposed to, in a lot of cases, a, a police department. So the barbers responded enthusiastically because the neighborhood is, is suffering a lot. and. You can't really measure, I think, the results of this program. It's only been around for uh, two and a half years, maybe. 
But there's definitely been, I think, in anecdotal terms, a transformation. You know, I said in my book, I don't think recidivism rates are always the best way to measure things, although they're one good tool. So this I, I see as kind of a transformative situation. So the barbers and patrons at the barbershop will talk about how they've been responding to conflict differently now. Um, people are coming to the shop as a place to talk through conflicts before violence happens. And it's really been kind of a culture shift in that way. I also talk about a restorative justice program in Flathead County, Montana, which is a majority Republican working class community. You wouldn't expect it to be a restorative justice hub, but they've had this amazingly successful program, which actually came about in response to a survey that was conducted that showed that they had the highest juvenile recidivism rate in the state. And so they kind of chose to take action as a community and built up this restorative justice program. And actually, at this point, people, most people who are victims of juvenile crime in Flathead County, I think all of them have the option to participate in the program, and almost all of them do. And I think it's been been less than six years, and there's been this huge drop in recidivism. Flathead County now has one of the lowest rates in the state. And I talked to a number of people there, both victims who'd participated in the program and people who'd done harm, youth who had done harm, who'd participated in the program. And they talked about that same sense of a culture shift, that same sense not just of like, okay, this was an intervention after a conflict and we resolved it and things have gone back to normal, whatever normal is, but that this shift took place in the community where accountability was thought of differently. And there was mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of this deepened sense of responsibility to your neighbors and interconnectedness. So Maya, in the book you have a an aha moment of sorts, I believe, or at least it's a wonderful metaphor for one of the, the underlying values of a restorative process, and that's um, providing a, a, a safe place for a victim to convey the meaning and impact of that harm. And I'd just like to share what you say here on page 137. You talk about your laptop being stolen and your car yeah. being broken into. And I love it because, you know, it's quite a metaphor and a micro example of how the system was unsupportive of you. And you say, the process I bought into provided no support for me beyond the false momentary sense of security that came from filing a report. It was geared toward catching and punishing a person or a bunch of people rather than addressing the impact of my loss or the causes of the epidemic in the first place. It's just one component of a system obsessed with not solving problems or aiding victims, but with crime. And I would love to hear more from you about the role of meaning and impact and how 
uh, a restorative process, a, a circle process, answers perhaps to the need of those who have been impacted like you were deeply. I mean, that laptop had <laughs> so much on it for over a decade, I believe, of your work, of your yeah. book, of journals, of all your interviews. And can you speak to that? Yeah, you know what's interesting is that laptop had a draft of my book on it up to that right. point. So when my laptop was stolen, I actually had to start all over again. But what I started with, the first thing I wrote after I finally bought a new computer and gave up on the idea that the police were going to magically return my computer to me, was I, I wrote that anecdote about having my computer stolen. And even as a person who doesn't believe in these structures, I immediately called the police and filed a report. You know, I was panicked. And the system did nothing for me. And I was just thinking through all of the ways in which I wasn't served by the system. And I think that that is such a crucial element that, that is missing in a lot of these reform conversations is how left in the cold you are as a victim. And of course, for me, having my laptop stolen is very traumatic, but it's even more traumatic, obviously, in a lot of situations where, where violence has taken place and people have lost something very significant that they need to mourn and recover from. And I think that in all of these ways, so like part of it, I think, is the fact that all of the feelings I had and all of the unresolved conflicts inside me had nowhere to go, you know and that a circle process would have addressed that. And fortunately, I, I do have a community in Chicago where we do have circles, and there's, there's a place to facilitate that. Unfortunately, it couldn't happen in the context of the actual incident that, that took place, and that was transferred over to the police. Of course, there's also just the question of material support. You know, I've thought about that a lot. I was able to afford to buy a new computer. What if I hadn't been able to afford that? And how much money is going into this supposed tracking down of these thousands of laptops that have been stolen in this laptop theft epidemic that was being described to me by the police? You know, where are those resources going? And so actually, in, in writing through all of these issues, I think the book, drafting the book, kind of became my, my restorative and transformative justice process. <laughs> you know, writing the draft and mm -hmm. sharing it with people, talking through the anecdotes, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that kind of communication and connection helped me heal. But I, I think that it certainly was the opposite of, of what was offered to me in the route mm -hmm. I chose to go. I'd like to um, take another real-time question here, and this one is from Tyler. Thank you, Tyler, for this great question. Um, he asks, what are some ways we can begin to thoughtfully engage non-traditional school-based stakeholders, such as students, parents, support staff, in discussions about justice transformation? Mm, yeah, that's, that's a great question. 
So for my book, one thing I, I looked at was restorative justice in schools and not, not just as a response to conflict, though that was part of it. It was kind of looking at how, how could restorative justice work in schools in a way that would promote that overall culture shift. And my favorite example was this program called Umoja, which was set up in a couple of high schools in Chicago a few years ago. And these high schools previously had very, very high rates of punitive school discipline, you know, suspension, and there were arrests taking place very regularly in schools, mostly of black youth. They had these high rates of expulsion, so kind of your, your basic school-to-prison pipeline. And so Umoja established these peace rooms in the schools, which aimed to be kind of elements to change that. And so first, the peace room functioned as a home for restorative justice. So if there's a fight in the hallway or a potential fight is brewing, the kids go to the peace room. A teacher might suggest they go or ask them to go, or in many cases, the kids will voluntarily go when they feel tension happening, and they have a circle. And this, this can also the peace room can be a home for circles that originate from other places. Maybe problems are happening at home or conflict between a teacher and a kid. Anyway, this, this restorative justice resource has become part of the fabric of the school as it's developed over the years. This idea of incorporating peace circles as a way to deal with tension and conflict and other things besides conflict like grief and even celebration. Mm. Kids who grew up with the peace room now go there themselves. You know, they, mm -hmm. they go there to have a circle when any of these, these situations arise. And so that's one thing, it's this home for circles. But they don't always have to have a formal circle. They can also go to the peace room to talk mm -hmm. to staff talk through problems happening at home, bounce ideas around, and talk through things informally. And I think this also centers around how kids relate to their community. The Peace Room makes a space in the school for education that is not just about science or math or English, but about learning how to be part of a community. And I guess one last thing I would say about that is that the Peace Room is also kind of a place to dream, to think through new, I, I want to say political possibilities, because that's, that's the word my brain goes to, but I think different ways of being in the world and making a place in school that is a space to have those conversations, I think is mm -hmm. really powerful. And there's a lot mm -hmm. of community involvement there too. Yeah, parents coming in people from the outside. So Maya, what have we not covered tonight that you really want to make sure we do before we close out our time together? I want to make sure that there's room for anything else that needs to be said and shared. Well, I guess the one thing that I would love to emphasize, you know, you mentioned at one point, Molly, that when people are in prison, the the level of isolation 
is so high and runs so deep that when your name is called during mail call, that can be a boost that changes someone's life. And so one thing I, I often try to talk to people about is the idea of getting a pen pal in prison. And I think this is a reciprocal benefit, if you want to think about it that way. It's not just doing a favor for someone, it's developing a friendship and developing a friendship that I think can lead to a lot of mutual understandings. I've certainly learned more from my pen pals in prison than I can possibly possibly say. You know, a lot of what I wrote in my book is, you know, things I learned from our correspondences. So I would encourage people to seek out a pen pal in prison or volunteer for a book project. There are a lot of book exchanges. I think there's one in, in most in most medium to large cities at least and those are also ways to get in touch with people in prison. Hmm. Great. Now, I, I have a burning question for you. How is Kayla? And, of course, you are an auntie um, yes. to her, <laughs> her young daughter. And how are they doing yeah. at the present moment? Yeah. If you don't mind me so my, my first niece, um, who was born two years ago, her birthday was on Friday. She was born while my sister was incarcerated. Right. And so the first few months of her life, she was not able to be with my sister, which was very sad. And At this I have point, to my sister... You, you laid out something that um, I encourage everyone, of course, to pick up this book. But what you lay out in there, Maya, is heartbreaking and um, very difficult to read, but very important to know about how uh, women who give give birth um, in prison, how, how it all rolls out. Um, there's some, some details yeah. in there that are hard to digest. It's horrifying. I mean, when you think about human rights, think about the shackling of, of a pregnant woman or a woman in labor. Even in Illinois where I live, you know, the shackling of, of prisoners in labor is outlawed but they put the shackles on the second my sister gave birth. <laughs> and she spent 24 hours with her baby, and after that she was led away in handcuffs back to prison. And so, you know, my niece had a hard time, and it's certainly, it's, it's such an unnatural and disturbing and abrupt phenomenon when a newborn is yanked away from their mother at birth and then, you know, fortunately for my sister, she got out a few months later, so she'd gone through a really serious suicidal depression while she was incarcerated after her baby gave birth, after her baby was born. But she came out, and then she had to go through this process of getting reacquainted with this baby, <laughs> and that was really challenging too, you know, to do that in addition to I guess, what we call re-entering the world. But they are still together. My sister is still out of prison, which is wonderful. And she's struggling, but she's making it. And it's interesting, actually, uh, two weeks ago, my sister gave birth to her second baby. And this time, she gave birth on the outside. <laughs> and oh. we were all able to be here. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's yeah. wonderful. So that, that's, that's wonderful yeah. to hear. Absolutely. Well, it's just been extraordinary to share with you tonight, Maya. And again, um, all the best to you. And thank you, really. Thank you so much for all your work in writing and in media and for this extraordinary book, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. And um, just the best of luck to you and everything and to your family. And for those of you, you so in the much, circle tonight, Mom. thank you so much for your participation. And please check out restorativejusticeontherise.org for this and 130 other podcasts related to justice, transformation, and public conversations that need to happen. Thank you again, and good night. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. We'll see you next week when we talk with Dr. David Raglan of the Truth Telling Project. Good night, everyone.